The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's episode 10 and we're off with a bang. My favourite sound, the one of a cork popping. The British love affair with champagne looked at one stage like it might be fading slightly, but COVID confounded the sceptics and sales held up remarkably well given the circumstances. We're joined from Helsinki by a master of wine who knows more than almost anyone else about champagne, Essie Avalan, to talk about its enduring appeal, its regional diversity and how you judge the best bubbles. Talking of love affairs, the British have been partial to sherry since the 14th century. So we'll talk to an evangelist for it, the man who sells us Tio Pepe, Martin Skelton, to guide us through a desert island selection of sherry and hear about the latest new release of its Onrama raw version. And if, like me, you went off cider in your teens, then it's time to get back on it. There are some surprising parallels with wine. Well, they surprised me anyway. So we'll find out why cider is wine with Alistair Morell. Plus, another reason to raise a toast. We'll have the first of the 2021 medal winners from the Northern Hemisphere judging in our IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Champagne, it's the ultimate drink of celebration, and it would be fair to say there's not been a huge amount to toast over the past year or so, yet sales have largely held up a measure just how much we love it in this country, at least. The UK is champagne's leading export market by volume and is second only to the USA, measured by value. Last year, with hospitality shut for much of the year, we flocked to the shops to buy our bubbles instead, meaning sales across the year declined by 20%. Still a decline, but it's a lot less than many in the industry had feared. Master of Wine Essie Avalan is one of the world's most eminent champagne experts, a reputed judge, champagne correspondent for Club Enologique, and an author of many books on the subject. And I'm delighted to say she joins us now from Finland, where she was the country's first MW. Uh, Essie, you're in Helsinki for us uh, today. Uh, thanks ever so much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Pleasure, David. And you hail from Finland, as I mentioned, but you've spent a huge amount of time over here in Britain and in other international markets for champagne. So you know the market really well. Were you surprised personally to see that sales of champagne actually fared relatively well as coronavirus hammered the British economy? Yeah, you know, in the beginning, it looked like it, it was going to be a really bad year for champagne. But very quickly, um, I think people started to take, you know, make the most of their, their time at home. So, of course, they couldn't uh, drink champagne in the restaurants or the events, um, you know, were cancelled. But people had a lot of time um, on their hands at home. So I'm not really surprised at all. Um, and I've understood that especially, you know, gifting, sending people buying champagne online, gifting and sending it to, to your friends' uh, homes and, and potentially enjoying it together, together has, has aided a lot. Yeah, gifting was absolutely huge. I, I wrote a feature piece about it and I think we were all just desperately trying to cheer each other up a, a year ago. Um, what do you think explains this historic uh, British love affair with uh, champagne, do you think? 
You know, you're quite right there that it truly is historic, because if you think back to 1662, uh, it was Christopher Merritt who was the first who deliberately made the wine of, of champagne bubbly, but that was in the UK and not in Champagne. And after that, you know, it was the British who wanted to start to drink um, um, dry champagne, so Pommery in 1876. Um, you know, that started the era of dry champagne as we know it today. So what historically triggered it, uh, I have no idea, but there's definitely something, you know, um, about bubbles that the British love. And now, of course, you have the English bubble, bubbles also to, to cater you for that. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, they're doing a, a great job, too. Uh, judging champagne and any kind of uh, sparkling wine, I suppose, sounds to an outsider, like the best job in the world. However, I mean, I've done a mere tiny fraction of the amount of judging of champagne uh, that you have done, but I always find it really quite challenging on the palate. Well, you know, I think that uh, uh, anyone in the industry would actually say that it's the worst job in the world because it, it really is actually, it's very difficult because the wines are rather, you know, mild, rather similar. Uh, they're high in acidity. They have a bit of sugar to them. Uh, they have the bubbles. So it's really tough on your mouth and you have to stay super concentrated um, all the time because the wines are really, really nuanced and, and very delicate. Uh, but, you know, you, you get used to it. Uh, I may tastes uh, champagne and sparkling wine so I mean for me it's actually tough to to um, judge uh, red wines um, now oh really okay well there's hope for me then how do you go about <laughs> judging a champagne what are you looking for well, mainly it's, of course, you know, similar procedure as for any any uh, wine. Uh, we, of course, have the addition of the of the bubbles, um, the texture of the bubbles uh, is, a, uh, and and you know, texture of wine in any case is very important. Personally, I value purity a lot, um, especially in in uh, champagne and sparkling wine that sort of lightness uh, of the wine um, but with the intensity of fruit that's something I'm really looking for and maybe one of the most important things is this sort of uh, vivacity energy in a wine sparkling wine really has to come with uh, with energy so I think we are looking for a little bit different things than for most other wines uh, sort of subtlety delicacy finesse um, and of course longevity and the delicacy and finesse uh, that makes me think actually of the of the mousse because the mousse can actually vary quite a lot on different uh, champagnes can't it yes yes you're quite right it's actually one of the key sort of quality criteria how fine the mousse is how how it behaves in your mouth and how long it lasts um, in the wine so definitely very very important feature for sparkling wines some some uh, Lesser wines can be very aggressive. Uh, they can they can explode. The bubbles can explode in your mouth and and uh, vanish very quickly. So definitely, it's one of the the key quality criteria. For your master of wine studies, you wrote your uh, dissertation, the third part of the very grueling MW program, uh, on single vineyard champagnes, and you uh, also won the Lily Bollinger Medal for for best 
taster too. How did you hone your champagne tasting skills? How did you build up this incredible specialism? Well, you know, there is uh, for the MW, there are really no shortcuts. You just have to do the work and taste and taste and taste. Uh, and, and of course, do, do the sort of um, the practical practice in, in exam conditions. That, that, that's the only way to, to do it. Uh, but of course, you had to not just, uh, you know, for champagne and sparkling wine, you had to uh, to um, recognize uh, all the different wine types um, of the world. And that's a lot of work to do um, when, when it comes to champagne and sparkling wine. It's just uh, just a question of tasting, um, tasting as well, tasting as much and as widely and as often as possible. It's not a very interesting answer, but that's <laughs> that's how it really is. Well, yeah, that is the reality. I think when I speak to anyone who's you know got themselves through the MW program, it's yeah, hard work and loads and loads of tastings. So it's uh, yeah. entirely consistent with that, whether it's uh, champagne or or anything else. In the time that you've been tasting and judging, uh, and you've had, uh, I tried to think how many glasses of champagne you must have had down uh, those years. How have you seen champagne evolve or develop as a category in that time? Probably one of the biggest changes has been the the sugar levels. Um, I think that you know when I started, um, most non-vintage champagnes would have been dosed um, at at around 10, 10 to twelve grams per liter, whereas now eight to nine is the norm. And we have more and more of these dry um, dry categories uh, emerging, like um, brut nature, uh, extra brut. Um, so that's one difference. Uh, one is, of course, the emergence of uh, of um, better and better rosé champagnes. Uh, they are really better now than ever um, in champagne and more exciting and versatile in, in in the styles. And then, of course, we have all the all the grower champagnes, uh, which are sort of more terroir oriented, uh, uh, and also you know trying to more more show a a um, sense of place. How important is that terroir diversity to champagne then? Well, you know, classically, champagne has has been the sort of uh, result of uh, very uh, uh, wide blending uh, between different areas and different vintages. Um, but champagne always has, you know, had the, the the taste of place, the taste of champagne. But now, of course, uh, we are trying to. Um, maybe show with these terroir champagnes more the the uh, sense of a certain place be it one particular village or one particular um vineyard and uh, that's i think it um, shows that you know um champagne how how people perceive champagne is changing it's not only a wine of celebration but it's a it's a, considered like a, a normal wine um, and also a gastronomic wine, so that uh, we want to learn more about it. We want to learn about its villages as much as we want uh, to learn about the villages of Burgundy. So for a consumer, when you go to the shelf and you see Premier Cru or Grand Cru, uh, I think you know, you're going to know that it's something uh, more special. Uh, you're going to know because of the price as much as anything else. But what are you actually getting in layman's terms when you go for Premier Cru or Grand Cru? Well, um, I don't think that you necessarily are, are um, getting um, a better product. You know, it, it doesn't mean so in, in the case of champagne, especially if you think of the, the wide blending, the larger houses do. The, you know, the wines might not carry the name Premier Cru, 
but uh, they are still wonderful uh, champagnes. But you know, of course, uh, champagne has um, better terroirs, and of course, definitely the the seventeen Grand Crus certainly are so because well, where they have ideal aspects, and of course, um, they have um, the chalk is more prominent uh, on those vineyards, so it helps, especially in lesser years uh, with the with the. Um, uh, you know, um, with the management of the water, how well the, the soil drains, uh, the chalk helps a lot. Um, and of course, uh, there might be a, a more of a note of minerality to them. So definitely, you know, Crown Cru is, uh, is, a, is a valuable um, uh, valuable thing in Champagne, uh, be it written on the label or not. You mentioned uh, just now the development over the last few years of these um, zero dosage or, or very low dosage uh, champagnes. And I've always been slightly more in love, I think, with the idea of uh, sort of brute zero than the reality uh, sometimes, mm. just because I can find them a bit austere, sort of lacking in pleasure. Do you think the these champagnes, that style, the low dosage, the no dosage, is still a work in progress. I'm so happy, actually, David, that you're saying that, because I think that many times uh, people now, you know, champagne lovers, they um, they are only interested in very dry styles. Whereas for me, I'm not interested in how much is there sugar or is it a brut or is it a brut nature. I'm just interested in the balance of the wine. If the balance works, if it has that deliciousness, uh, with or without um, um, sugar, I'm going to like it. Uh, and we also have to uh, have to bear in mind um, that uh, the sugar also helps in, in the aging. It, it helps in combating oxidation. So many times these very dry champagnes actually don't age very well. And personally, I love, you know, the, uh, the mature champagnes and therefore it's, it's more reliable to go for, for those styles that have a little bit of uh, sugar to, to them if you want the wine to um, shine in five or ten years time. Yeah, talking of aging, how concerned should we be about the impact of climate change? Because a lot is said about the conditions in the Champagne region changing as it gets warmer. Yeah, I think that so far the region has has really benefited uh, from um, climate change. You know, there are more vintage years, more successful years. We need less um, sugar to to reach the balance in in the wines. Personally, for me, of course, worried about the very early uh, early harvest, shorter uh, growing um, periods. What that might might make you know do for the champagnes in the long run. But what I don't really like that we have more and more of these really hot um, hot character years, like we've had plenty of them since. Uh, um, you know, since the onset of this uh, millennium, so say uh, oh, 2003, five, six, um, and so forth. So these are the sort of, they are richer, wider, fleshier, heavier um, styles. And sometimes they are, you know, lacking some of the, the vivacity and uh, finesse of the cooler years. And what can they do about that? Because they can't, obviously, we all need to think about climate change, but uh, the growers in Champagne, they have their own specific things that they're trying to do, don't they? Yes, sure. I mean, there are plenty of things one can uh, do in the vineyard uh, with, by the means of vineyard management. 
but of course, in Champagne, we, we have to remember that we have uh, the possibility to use also the reserve wines. So um, as in, you know, many times before, the reserve wines were, um, were used to bring sort of gravitas, uh, richness to the wine. But now actually they are used more uh, also to aid um, the freshness of the wine you know, in case we have these, these vintages that are, that are heavier um, in, in the profile. So there's, there's uh, plenty, uh, plenty one can do. Um, and I think many of the producers, both growers and houses, are really you know, putting their... their um, uh, heads into this question. Yeah, well, they've got plenty of money, a lot of them at least, to develop these kind of things, I suppose. So that, that will uh, certainly help. And uh, it just makes you kind of think about the, the magic of reserve wines as well, doesn't it, really? Yeah, the reserve wines are, are amazing. And I think that, you know, many other um, regions would benefit from a system like that. Say, say the English sparkling wines, I'm sure they will start to use more, uh, more of these reserve wines uh, in the future to, to um, bring a more consistent um, product. Yeah, we're just, I think, starting to see it now. And it, it, you know, it's really, really exciting. But uh, you're probably going to hate this question because you must get asked it all the time. But it sort of begs to be asked. What's the best champagne you've ever tasted, Essie? Yeah, that's a that's a um, a tough um, tough question. You know, best uh, you know by the taste of you know by taste only, or or one that has been the most significant for me. Of course, I'm I'm really intrigued by uh, by tasting history, um, and I've had the opportunity to taste some of the oldest um, champagnes um, existing. Uh, say the 1825 Perrier Jouette, um, which is the oldest ex existing bottle of champagne. But you know, also here in Finland, wow. we had that uh, that champagne treasure uh, in the Baltic Sea. You know, from the 1830s, uh, some Veuve Clicquot from uh, from the era of um, of Madame Clicquot. So even if maybe as wines they are not uh, the greatest, uh, but you know, when when you can just uh, sip a, a little bit of history, that's uh, that's uh, really important for me. Yeah, and that is just, I, I think, one of the most incredible things about champagne and, and going into those uh, cellars, as you say, it's uh, you think about what was happening in the world at a, a given moment and you're drinking something from that era and to have something from the era of Madame Clicquot sounds absolutely uh, incredible. Essie, it's uh, really great uh, to chat to you. Thanks uh, so much for sharing some of your extensive champagne knowledge uh, with us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time for the first of our medal-winning wines, and we're celebrating the inaugural 2021 winners from the Northern Hemisphere wines. And where better to start than Champagne? and a double bill of gold medals for Piper Heidseck for its Rare Brut 2008 and Brut Rosé from the same vintage. The judges awarded the Rare Brut 97 points, saying an expressive buttered brioche nose, gun smoke reduction, red fruit and toasted almond and pistachio notes. This very precise and elegant champagne has a piercing acidity that underscores the long finish of lime zest, quince and apple. And then there's the Brut Rosé 2008, also a gold medal winner with 96 points this time. The judges saying 
After elegant toast, nuts and brioche aromas, bright red berries burst on the palate, underpinned by the smoky savouriness of flint. A long, lingering finish and fine, generous mousse make for a superlative gastronomic experience. Only declared in the most exceptional of years, only 11 vintages of the past 40 have been made uh, by Piper Heidsek, itself 200 years old. And both of these are available in good independent stores. And of course, you'll find them in fine dining now that that's uh, reopened. And slightly different uh, price point, but here's a real favourite of mine, actually. Tesco's Blanc de Blanc non-vintage champagne, made by Union Champagne, a cooperative in the region. It won a gold medal with 95 points. The judges saying an abundance of character that gives a rich and luxurious feel. The lemon yoghurt, butter almond, ripe apple and creamy biscuit notes create a palate that has it all in terms of poise, weight and persistence. And I couldn't agree more. I'm a fan of that one. And it's yours for about 20 quid at Tesco, less if you can catch it on promo. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Well, if we're talking about love affairs this week and our soft spot for champagne, then it seems entirely natural for us to segue to sherry. That particular crush goes back quite a lot further. It was first shipped to these shores in 1340, and it's fair to say that the relationship has also been a bit more tumultuous uh, down the years too. In fact, when I was first discovering the joys of drinking, not always in moderation, I associated sherry with my grandmother, but not anymore. Sherry has undergone a renaissance with drier styles, driving a newfound love for it, and cocktails too. Uh, Martin Skelton is a sherry evangelist, which is just as well, as he's the UK managing director of Gonzales Bias, the owner of Tio Pepe. Uh, Martin, hello, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Oh, hi, David. Thank you very much. Before we talk about the history, which is fascinating, tell us how you personally came to love sherry. Um, I think I probably had sherry before I went to live in Spain. Um, perhaps my father, um, or with a housemaster, or something like that. Um, but um, I think I probably fell in love with sherry when I was in um, the Ferry of Seville in um, probably the early 1990s. And, um, yeah, I saw all of these people, these well-dressed people, uh, young folk all drinking Manzanilla and Fino and just loving it. Um, the beautiful senoritas, the people um, side saddle on a horse with a glass of sherry perched in the hand. I mean, um, yeah, with a sort of um, the music of Sevillanas and flamenco coming out of the cassettes in the, in, the, in, in the feria. I mean, I think that's the way to sort of really get into sherry and understand it. Oh, yeah, you've got to be there and be in one of those bars, as you say. It just, it's absolutely uh, magical. But tell us how a drink produced in this triangle of land in the south of Spain came to be such a British thing. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, we British, we search for the best things, don't we? We love to travel um, and we love to bring home what we can't make here. So, um, you know, whether we're talking about um, cheese or wine or anything else. So, you know, I mean, we call Bordeaux wine claret, didn't we? And the wines, the fortified wines of the Douro Valley in Portugal, we call it port and so on. Um, and then, of course, they searched 
picked out the best wines from the south of Spain. Uh, the British were, were probably responsible for, for fortifying, uh, for adding a little bit of colourless grape brandy to the local wine of Jerez, uh, and we called that sherry and brought it back here. Um, and loved it ever since, as you said, for 600 years, 700 years, we've been drinking that sort of wine. So, um, yeah, it's been a long history and a long love for the wines of Jerez. And tell us about that sherry triangle in broad terms, how it's demarcated and, and, and what that means in terms of what we get in our glass. Well, the sherry triangle obviously refers to the three points of the production of sherry, the three towns where sherry can be aged. Um, those are called San Luca, El Puerto de Santa Maria and Jerez. And sort of between those three points, uh, two ports and the inland town of Jerez are the vineyards, uh, which are the low rising chalk hills. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, this isn't actually sort of um, a legal term, the Sherry Triangle. It's just, it just sort of denotes the three spots where Sherry is aged. Um, and more or less the vineyards, um, are also sort of within this triangle. They're sort of, the vineyards are basically low rising hills of chalk soil uh, where the Palomino grapes are grown. Um, and uh, that's why um, we talk about the Sherry Triangle. But, you know, this is very much in the very south of Spain, next to the Atlantic Ocean, in a very beautiful place, great to visit as well. And the Solera system that's used to make it can be a bit confusing to explain. Uh, you must have honed given your evangelising about sherry, you must have honed a very snappy way of explaining it uh, to someone who is new to sherry. Um, there's nothing snappy about explaining the Solera system, but <laughs> I'll try and do it, David, in as few words as possible. I mean, first and foremost, we should explain that sherry is aged in large oak barrels. These barrels are 600 litres. That's nearly three times the size of a typical Bordeaux barrel, if people know what they look like. But um, in these 600 litres, also, it's very important to mention that um, about a quarter of the barrel isn't used. They only fill the barrel about three quarters full. So that's the first image that people have to have in mind, that we have some air um, sort of on top of the wine. Um, but the Solera system basically is a blending system. We don't make vintage sherry, or very little anyway, um, um, sherry is a mixture of different years. So very quickly, if you have, um, if you have your own sherry business, David, and you own um, three glorious barrels of sherry, and you pile one on top of the other, then the way the Solera system works is you take out one third of the contents of the barrel that's sitting on the floor to be bottled. Um, and you fill that up with the same amount of sherry from the barrel just above it. And then you replace that with the barrel on the top. And then the barrel on the top has obviously lost a third of its contents. And you fill that up with the wine from the most recent harvest. Um, and that's how it works. And you run the, it's called running the scales. And you do that three times a year. So essentially you empty your barrel once a year, the barrel on the ground. Um, and you've and sort of basically three times a year you've run those scales. So you're mixing all the different harvests through your Solera system. Um, and then eventually in the barrel that's sitting on the ground, you have a mixture, a glorious mixture of lots and lots of different years of sherry. So, you know, you're creating a very consistent blend. Um, and that's the whole point of the Solera system. Yeah, well, that's pretty snappy to me. I mean, it's it is uh, as you say. There's not much that's snappy about it, but that's that's no. uh, pretty pretty sounds pretty good to me. 
I remember being at a, a launch of a previous Onrama um, Fino, and we'll talk about um, the, the latest one shortly. But um, you mentioned that you had seen in your time uh, dealing in Sherry, you'd seen it move from the, I think you called it the embarrassment pages at the back of the wine list, proudly to the front of the wine list. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if I mentioned the embarrassment page, but certainly it was sort of, sort of with the after dinner drinks, so sort of on the last page of a wine list, and you had to search quite hard for it. But certainly, um, Sherry now, um, all respectful hotels, Michelin star restaurants, and so on, um, they now include Sherry's on the front page. So between sort of um, the champagnes and the pouring whites, and they usually have um, a few sherries which is great you know um and you know most sort of sort of tasting menus at top restaurants will include a sherry whether it's a pedro jimenez with a dessert or a palo cortado um so um yeah which is really exciting for the industry and that is a, a really significant uh, step change actually in a relatively short amount of time isn't it yeah well i mean it's huge for us as an industry seeing um you know for sherry to be out there and to be seen to be one of the great wines again as it always has been but um it's now being recognized you know and uh, the fact that um sherry sales have actually gone up by between 25 and 30 percent in the last year is also good news except that we're starting to run out of certain styles of sherry david oh no well that's something you couldn't necessarily have imagined happening maybe a decade ago but it's a, a great sign of the appetite for it you've just launched this new product that i mentioned uh, that's also historically significant in its own way too um, a raw sherry uh, tio pepe on rama it's the 12th edition of this. Uh, tell us a bit about it. Well, yeah, Tia Pepin Rama is basically the sherry you get if you visit the bodega in Jerez, which hopefully we'll be able to do quite soon. You know, when you get taken around the bodegas and there's a person with a sort of a long stick with a ladle on the end called a venencia, he'll pull a sample of fresh fino from the middle of one of these casks and pour it into a glass. Um, and it has this really sublime sort of intense flavor of, of lovely sort of fresh bready fino sherry and um, yeah this is exactly what you get in a bottle of tea pepin rama basically it's unfiltered unclarified um, sherry that's bottled virtually from the cask um, it can be a bit cloudy um, and it does have bits in so be warned but it is a full flavored experience and basically we bring it into the market in the month of may at uh, the beginning of may um, which is the time of year that the floor covering or yeast that covers the fino sherry is at its thickest and gives the most glorious flavor to the wine and um, yeah, so we bottle it when it's tasting at its absolute best, bring in a small quantity and basically it sells out within a few weeks. And it is such a joy. I've come to look forward to it in the way that I look forward, for example, to the British asparagus season, which is very time defined and, and a real treat. And the Onrama season is uh, more or less coincides, not, not quite. As you mentioned, it does tend to run out as well because it's limited edition. So where can we get hold of it? Well, yeah, I mean, fortunately, there are lots of good stockists, um, you know, um, if they're lucky members of the Wine Society, um, uh, they always buy the largest amount. They were the first customer for Tia Pepin Rama 12 years ago. But yeah, Lee and Sanderman, uh, all good independent wine merchants, um, buy a few cases these days. 
um, Majestic has a small amount. So um, yeah, um, lots of lots of our good customers um, are stocking up on Tiapepi and Rama at this time of year. I think if you um, go on Google, you'll quickly see um, who stocks it. But um, yeah, if you're interested in in tasting this most delicious wine, then um, then buy a bottle now. Yeah, it it is really fantastic. As I say, I, I look forward to it every year. The Sherry Spectrum runs from dry to sweet, obviously. All of those styles have their own different merits. Um, are there particular styles of Sherry that you would single out for people to try? Well, I think that possibly the most interesting, um, most food versatile Sherry would be Fino or Manzanilla. Um, so um, basically, these are the same style of sherry, but just made in different towns. Um, you know, because um, because I think because fino, it's worth saying, is a great aperitif or or a great sort of um, wine with a starter. You know, because it cuts through the sort of the strong flavours or oiliness of certain foods. I mean, it goes beautifully with asparagus with with butter that's just melted on them, you know, or or oh, things yum. like sort of, or seafood, oysters, or, you know, the Spanish gambas, or even if some Spanish tortilla, that lovely thick sort of omelette that they make in the south of Spain with those runny egg yolks, you know, um, or, you know, anchovies, or even sort of something like smoked salmon, which is quite powerful and oily. Um, the fino just cuts straight through it. So I think the fino is the best sort of food sherry wine, but there are all sorts of different styles of sherry, as you mentioned. Um, you know, there are amontillados, which are sort of, sort of, if you like old finos, there's olorosos, which are dry until they're sweetened with Pedro Jimenez, and then they're called cream or sweet oloroso. And then there's very, very sweet PX, Pedro Jimenez, which is a different grape variety altogether. Um, and that goes beautifully with vanilla ice cream. It's one of those sublime matches. It's David. heaven, isn't it? It's just heaven. Soft serve ice cream uh, with lashings of Pedro Jimenez. I can think of few treats that I uh, would uh, put ahead of that, frankly, at the end of a meal. A, a really, yeah, just an incredible um, combination. Talking of combinations, I mentioned in the introduction uh, yep. cocktails. Uh, do you yes. kind of approve of using sherry in cocktails? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love making cocktails with sherry. You know, um, it's, um, it's, there's a sort of fashion going on at the moment in terms of lower alcohol cocktails that sort of started, I think, in bars in London and elsewhere. And um, so we know that there are a lot of mixologists now using sherry in their cocktails. I mean, I make a very simple one, um, and this obviously comes from Spain, which they, there they called it Rebujito, which is basically about one third Tio Pepe and two thirds lemonade, you know, with a garnish of mint um, and, a, and, a, and a slice of lemon with loads of ice. And it's really delicious, a very simple summer drink, but also Tio Pepe and tonic. Um, and tonic water go beautifully. So um, that works well also for the summer. Yeah, I love the uh, Fino and tonic or Manzanilla and tonic is just so refreshing. And actually, compared to a gin and tonic, of course, you're getting a lot lower alcohol, which I guess is one of the reasons that the mixologists also like it, because you can have, bring complexity, but you can also bring lower alcohol to a cocktail potentially, can't you? Yes. 
Exactly, yes. Um, and also, you have to um, um, add a splash of Tia Pepe to a Bloody Mary. Um, oh, you know, I've never They done do that. that in all the best bars. All right. Okay, well, I should definitely try that. You're making me very thirsty anyway. I'm sorry to ask this, but because uh, it's probably like asking you for a favourite child, but do you have a favourite sherry? Um, I do, yes. My favourite sherry would be a young Amontillado. I mean, we have one called uh, Vina... V-I-N-A, Vina A-B, um, as in the letters A-B. <laughs> right. And it's, um, uh, I, I think you should Google that. Um, you can get it on, on thedrinkshop.com. Um, and, um, and a few independent wine merchants have it as well. We make it in small amounts. Basically, we run out twice a year. It's selling faster every year. It's a 12-year-old. It Basically, it's a 12-year-old pheno that's just started to oxidize a little bit. It goes a little bit nutty. Um, it takes on uh, lots of complexity, but it's very drinkable, uh, very delicious. And with a bowl of olives, I can't think of anything better. Oh, or some Marcona almonds as well. That that just, that with sherry as well, uh, just I adore. I'm, I'm yes. really hungry now. And actually quite thirsty too uh, it must be so exciting for you uh seeing sherry take off seeing those sales figures last year and seeing people discover or, or rediscover it so um thank you very much for evangelizing about sherry for us uh, today on the drinking hour martin it's been an absolute pleasure thank you david the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Some sherry medal winners then next, and appropriately enough, we start off with a medal winner from Gonzales Bias. Matusalem VORS won a prestigious gold medal with 96 points. The judges saying intense and giving nose in a rich style, showing lots of PX, Pedro Jimenez. Superb interwoven palettes with complex nutty notes, sweet spice and a lively citrus peel edge. Opening in the mouth to reveal cake, prune and raisin on a lovely long finish. Sounds delicious. Matured for a minimum of 30 years. This is a blend of 75% Palomino Fino and 25% Pedro Jimenez. The grape varieties aged separately for about 15 years before being blended together. Only then does it enter that Solera system where it's aged for a further 15 years. Wow. And here's a Manzanilla, which won a gold medal. Williams and Humbert, Allegria Manzanilla Superior, non-vintage. The judges saying complex, intense nose showing some evolution. Layered palette with almond, orange peel and spice all supported with a mineral and saline finish. Lovely structure and freshness, they said. And finally, a gold medal winning Oloroso VORS, non-vintage, from Emilio Lustau from Jerez, which won 98 points. The judges said it was an outstanding example. Endless depth of fruit and complexity of evolution, with leather and varnish aplenty. Palette expansive with crunchy walnuts and marmalade, complex and intense. Heat of alcohol is well checked and balanced with umami pleasantness. Does everything you would want it to. I think Sherry tends to, to be honest. Each cask at Lustau is marked with a cryptic chalk symbol that identifies what's in it in a kind of secret code, the language of those cellar masters. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
Now, I suspect that most of us probably got wrecked on cider at some point in our youth. Some of us may even have been put off for life as a result. I think that may have been me after a canal holiday at the age of about 13. Well, Cider is Wine is asking drinkers and wine drinkers in particular to take a new look at cider, perry and fruit wines and to put aside some of those bad memories of early youth and discover what are in fact sophisticated, elegant and delicious drinks with a rightful place alongside wines made from grapes. If you're not convinced yet, then I suspect you may well be at the end of this chat because Alistair Morell from Cider is Wine joins us now from Sussex. Uh, hello, Alistair. Hello, David. Uh, good morning to you. So you're going to be helping to, well, probably preach to the converted in some cases, but also help to convert uh, some of us. And so you've, uh, with the things I've tasted, you've done a pretty good job with me so far. You're asking consumers to think again when it comes to cider. Why should we do that? I mean, quite simply because we're missing one of the most important artisan and historic drinks from our production repertoire, um, which are delicious, they're authentic, and they have such a rich diversity of styles. And when you consider that we import 99.5% of the wine that we drink um, and we have a, a terrific cider heritage in this country that really is as strong as any wine heritage, grape wine heritage in France, we're really missing a trick. And there's a great opportunity for us to expand, expand our flavour horizons and our flavour experiences out there. So what's in the name Cider is Wine? You clearly, sincerely think there's a, a really close parallel there. Oh, I think there is a, 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 a parallel that's been lost, sadly. Um, if you actually go back to the very basics and look at the Collins Dictionary definition, or indeed the Cambridge English Dictionary definition of what is wine, it is any alcoholic drink that comes from fruit or flowers. So in actual fact, um, you know, the, the kind of technical aspect of is cider wine, well, when it's made from 100% juice, absolutely, it is, it is wine by that definition. But we, we go further than that in cider is wine because it's not just about that technical definition. It's actually about the appreciation of it. It's actually about getting in under the skin of that and, and, and a more cultural ref and historical references as well. Um, and, and, and also the food and cider matching uh, aspects, which are absolutely fascinating and very broad ranging. So yeah, I, you know, cider is, is wine. Um, when you look at the processes, uh, the nature of the producers um, and uh, the way that it's, it's made. Doing my homework, something uh, surprised me. Uh, we know, of course, that wine uh, made from grapes has to be fermented exclusively from grapes under EU law. Yet in the UK, cider and perry can be made from just 35% juice, all of which can be from imported concentrate. Uh, this might be why some ciders I've had in the past that are mass produced I haven't liked very much, I suspect. It seems really shocking that that's the case. I, I think it's uh, profoundly shocking, especially in an era when uh, we examine our food in closer, closer detail and we expect it to be authentic. If you 
have a British cider, you'd expect it to come from British apples. It's not the case. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this, with, when you've got such a massive heritage as we have in this country of cider and perry making, um, we invented the champagne method 10 years before Dom Perignon walked into a cellar in northern France, for example. We're the biggest producers in the world with 40% of the, of the production. And 200 years ago, cider was seen as the drink for celebration by the great and the good. Uh, not to mention the varieties and flavours and characteristics uh, of them. So I, I, I find it profoundly shocking that we're, you know, really pulling the wool over consumers' eyes and, and persuading them that something is made from apples when, well, it is, but really, is that what we expect in today's uh, consumer products? I don't think so. You know, we, we stand for 100% juice, not from concentrate uh, ciders, perries and fruit wines, the, the real deal if you like and I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to enjoy those. Yeah, well here, here. So what makes a good cider in your opinion then? Well, I, I, I think it's like wine. Um, it's, it's balance ultimately. Um, it's uh, that nebulous thing that teeters between personal opinion and objective analysis. Um, it's something that uh, really fulfills the soul. It, it's uh, it's complete. It's it's got a balance of acidity and fruit, and in cider's case, tannin as well. Tannin's a really important part of the uh, of the structure of the of the drink, um, and and it's about enjoyment. It's about that pleasure that you get from uh, from from seeing this wonderfully. Uh, fermented, uh, low intervention type of uh, drink, and partnering it with different foods. Um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, another aspect of it that I think is really, really important. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about what you believe is, is good, what your personal, nobody can take away your personal taste. But after 30 odd years in the wine industry, uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked to, uh, to, to taste these ciders and say, wow, um, I have to kind of relearn everything that I once knew because they taste absolutely unbelievable. They're fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, you were kind enough to send me a, 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 a small selection and I was uh, pretty gobsmacked myself. Tannins, actually, really interesting because I hadn't really thought about tannins in the context of uh, of, of cider, but this is coming from just like grapes. It's coming from the pips and the skin, is it? And the skins, yes, the skins in particular, because um, unlike grapes, um, one of the slight differences in the process is that um, they can't um, take the flesh away from the skin before creating the mash, which creates the juice. So where with, with grapes, you press the grapes, the juice comes out and you have a certain amount of, of free run juice, which is free of any skin top contact. In, in uh, apples and pear um, processing, then they, they mill the pears or the apples, um, which then allows the juice to set free. But within that, then there's a certain amount of skin top contact. So you always end up with a certain amount of tannin in, in ciders and perries um, because the fruit is just too hard to be able to uh, press and, and separate the, the juice from the skin in the early stages. Okay, um, well, I, I, as I mentioned, I've been doing some tasting of the various different mm. styles and it caused me to step back and think again, as I said, 
not least the sheer diversity in styles from sparkling perry which you talked about the traditional drinks of celebration which would absolutely be uh, just the job to swedish ice cider and fruit wines like the blueberry one i tried which was delicious so much more versatile than i had possibly imagined absolutely the the scope of the different styles is as broad as wine um if not uh, if not broader um so you go from dry to sweet um from sparkling to still and really everything in between um there are things with higher tannins lower tannins lower acids higher acids um and this this is what creates this kaleidoscope of uh, choice that we have which is absolutely tremendous it's never ending it's almost i think it's infinite really um add to that the different methods of production um you know you have the champagne method um you have just still uh, production methods you have co-ferments something that's not used within winemaking but is used within these cider makings where they ferment the apples on onto on on grape skins um which is fascinating it's unbelievable how much uh dimension that brings to the drink keeving a process that is unique to cider making um all of these things add to the diversity and ice cider is that uh, like an ice wine is this something that's been frozen in the orchard it can be um ice cider um really uh its descendancy really comes from uh, ice wine uh, in canada in the late 90 uh, late 80s uh, 1980s and was then legislated for in in quebec and there's a certain uh, protocol for how you have to make ice cider um, and there's two ways you can either uh, take the frozen fruit from the orchard or you can press the uh, apples uh, take the juice and the juice must be frozen outside in a naturally cold environment now people have gone on from there and actually now they freeze the the fruit in commercial freezers or the juice in in commercial freezers uh, and make ice cider in in that way and it's totally legitimate i think not in in quebec but that's the only place that it's not legitimate everywhere else it would be um so to make there's kind of two different styles of of ice cider that are emerging there are those that are naturally cold and there are those that are produced by other means um and they produce the most sensational uh, drinks in fact yeah, i'm rare, rarely do i put a glass in front of somebody and they don't say wow where can i get a bottle because they yeah. they just blow people <laughs> away uh, so that was pretty much uh, my reaction as well um on sparkling perry i still tend to think of baby sham something else i think i probably shouldn't have been drinking when i was a teenager to be honest but um that is i believe uh, a sparkling perry although probably not of the kind that uh, you would be uh, championing necessarily what defines a perry is, is there a definition apart from the fact it's got pear in it uh, yes there is a, a a definition and in this country um then uh, the definition is is made from 35% juice just like uh, cider uh, right. made from and, and and derived from pears but like uh, these rules that we have in this country um there is no global understanding of what uh, perry is or or, or isn't 
um, you have varying amounts of juice varying from 0% all the way to 100% um, of production of, uh, of, of Perry's. Um, and I find that, you know, the best known Perry is Katy Perry in actual fact, which <laughs> I, I think it's a great disappointment because, you know, when you actually uh, taste the, the real McCoy, uh, then you have some terrific Perry. Pears have the ability to be the Pinot Noir of the uh, cider and Perry industry. Um, they Pears are really difficult, awkward to produce. Uh, as Perry, and yet they yield the most unbelievable flavours. They have that mm. sixth sense, like like Great Burgundy does. That you know, it's both delicate and assertive at the same time. Uh, and and that is what the uh, the Perry's uh, Perry can be when it's produced uh, really superbly. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating area it's to be. It's really good. A, a great drink for celebration, as you said. And actually, it doesn't surprise me that pears are difficult to work with, because if you think about them in the fruit bowl, one minute rock hard, next minute rock hard, next minute overripe. And yeah. uh, re really hard to get in there at the right moment, yeah. but uh, delicious when you do. So you're um, asking consumers to think again, as I mentioned, and you're planning a tasting working alongside the IWSC, who uh, sponsored this programme. Uh, tell us about what you're planning and what you hope to achieve. So um, our we have a, a, a vision at Cider is Wine that by 2030, all uh, trade and consumers will be aware of this new sector of drinks, um, which is 100% uh, juice, uh, fermented from 100% juice, not from concentrate, ciders, perries and, and fruit wines. And... Um, in order to achieve that, we have to see them judged uh, by uh, people uh, of uh, real education and understanding and uh, knowledge um, and, and judged alongside wine as well. Uh, but we really believe that they can be aesthetically appreciated just, uh, just as much as that. And so we, we discussed with the IWSC the, uh, the fact that cider Perries and fruit wines are very similar to uh, wines. They have one of the leading uh, competitions and awards in the in in the world um, for uh, wines and spirits. Uh, would they like to uh, collaborate on this project? And they said they would. So we're asking producers, cider perries, and fruit wine producers to enter their products into this uh, uh, tasting, uh, and uh, they will be judged by five. Uh, judges um, who have great experience in in the sector in journalism as well uh, in observing drinks of these types um, and uh, they will be uh, awards uh, at the end of it of uh, just like there is in the IWSC uh, proper yeah um, great we, idea. can we be part of it how, how can we get involved how can we follow it well we're We'll obviously be a, a conduit for the press uh, afterwards and we'll be celebrating the awards and, and those that have won and, and so on, as will the IWSC uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the summer. And uh, that will be in the first week of July. So shortly after the first week of July and then into the, into the autumn, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, press and uh, a celebration of, uh, of, of the winners um, and uh, then it's about trying them, um, buying them yeah. and seeing how we can uh, uh, enjoy them and where, what we enjoy them with. Um, and we've, we've 
got a lot of uh, those products on our website, uh, cideriswine.co.uk. Uh, for producers, if they want to enter, then they need to go to the iwsc.net or just get in contact with me and I'll point them in the right direction. Um, it's easy enough to enter online and it's only for 100% juice, not from concentrate ciders, perries and fruit wines. Great. Okay. And there's still time to enter for the next uh, couple of weeks. There is still time to enter um, until June the 25th, I believe we can uh, enter up until. Great. Okay. Well, it's a great idea, I have to say. And uh, you're preaching to the converted with me because I've ha had a taste. So really fascinating talking about it and hearing... Uh, your uh, knowledge of it and your evangelism for the cause. Uh, Alistair, thanks very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Uh, absolutely delighted to join you, David, and thank you very much for uh, trying them and uh, enjoying those, those uh, samples that we sent along. My pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. And that is it for another episode of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, too, to my guests. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or you can follow me as well, if you like. I'm at Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us at thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. But until next time, it's goodbye for now.